Our Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for uh, these vivid, moving descriptions of uh, the righteous and the wicked, and we pray that we may be those who take heed to what we hear and what we understand, and that it may lead to life and not to death. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, some of the most uh, profound but often misunderstood stories emerge out of the Old Testament. And uh, there are times when on the surface of the Old Testament story, you think you know what's going on, but actually as you dig a little deeper, you find out that there is a great deal more going on than what you first imagined. And uh, to really understand any one story of the Old Testament, you really need to be familiar with large sections of the Old Testament that usually come before, but sometimes after. And to the degree that you understand the sections before, you will have more light to shed upon the story that you're reading. And I think that if you want to understand human nature particularly well, you should turn to the Old Testament. The New Testament is largely didactic in terms of uh, its doctrine, the way it uh, summarizes things. It gives you a, a verse that incorporates a whole host of truths, but it's, it's much more in terms of doctrine, just comes fast and furious, whereas the Old Testament takes time to establish plots and themes and ideas. And so it's good to look at Old Testament stories from time to time to get the idea of what is going on with regards to human nature. Now, uh, this account that we have read earlier in the reading, and also this one, highlights Saul's death. And uh, as you can see, there's a very sad ending to Saul's life. He is the first anointed king of Israel. God's Spirit is put upon him. Uh, he is a man who accomplished many great military victories in the name of the Lord. But God also removes his Spirit from Saul because of disobedience that is connected to uh, the theme that is going to be before us tonight. And you find that Israel's king, Israel's king, the nation that is taught to worship the only true God, the nation that has experienced the power of God, Israel's king visits a witch. And so Saul's life is a salutary reminder to us all that it is one thing to start a race well, but it is another thing to finish the race well. And we are to always keep in mind that not many run a good race till the end. Now, you know in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel that Saul killed himself. What are we to make of this? Well, some character comes onto the scene in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, right after we are supposed to have read 1 Samuel chapter 31. So you have to keep in mind where you've just come from. You don't just pick up 2 Samuel on its own and read it. That's not the intention. You are supposed to have read chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. So you've read chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. You have the basic story of Saul's death in your mind, and then you read chapter 1 of 2 Samuel. And we have an Amalekite. And this Amalekite is put to death. But 
if you read chapter 31, he did not actually kill Saul. Now, this raises a whole bunch of issues. How do we make sense of this all? One of the keys to understanding Old Testament literature and Hebrew language is repetition. When you see repetition, you are getting a clue. Repetition is everything to a Hebrew reader. And when you see repetition, you need to open your eyes and pay very close attention. So, what are we told in chapter 1? We are told twice that this person is an Amalekite. You see that in verse 8. I am an Amalekite. Why say it again? Verse 13, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And you actually get another clue in the language, a sojourner, which we will come to a little bit later. But the point is, twice we are told this person is an Amalekite in the space of a few verses. And we're told that this Amalekite is a sojourner. So what we first have to do then is ask ourselves another question, who are the Amalekites? This person has said twice they are an Amalekite under the questioning of Saul and David allegedly. Now we ask ourselves, who are the Amalekites? And this goes right back to Exodus. And as I said earlier, you want to understand any one passage in the Old Testament, you need to understand the rest of the Old Testament. So in Exodus chapter 17, beginning at verse 8, and you'll uh, have to bear with me tonight. You're going to be reading and hearing a lot of Scripture. I hope that's okay with you. You're, you're not busy, are you? <laughs> I don't know what TV shows you're into these days and what you've got to get home to. But verse 8 in chapter 17 of Exodus, we're told, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men. And go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. There's something very important to understand. God is going to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, as this unfolds over the course of redemptive history, Saul is told to blot out Amalek, but he doesn't. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 15. What ends up happening then when Saul refuses to obey God by blotting out Amalek? God then rejects Saul. So in another place, Deuteronomy chapter 25, again emphasis, 
We are told in verse 17, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary. Here's another clue. Amalek attacked them when they were faint and weary and cut off your tail those who were lagging behind you. So the weak who were lagging behind, he went after. And he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Saul didn't do that. And what you find in that passage is that Amalek and the Amalekites go after the weak. And so the first thing you need to understand is the Amalekites take advantage of the weakness of others. That is what characterizes them. So by the time you get to 1 Samuel chapter 30, we didn't have time to read the whole Old Testament before the sermon. I didn't want J.D. to quit on the spot. I asked him merely to just do the pastoral prayer. So you see how I'm a kind and generous pastor to you? Well, in chapter 30 of 1 Samuel, we are told, now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites, these guys keep popping up everywhere. The Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag, and those are southern cities in Israel. So you look on a map, Negev south, Ziklag a little more north of that, but still in the south. Israel were fighting battles in the north at this time. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. Why is that detail important? Because the men are fighting a battle. So they come and they take this city captive, the women and all who are in it. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. Now David and his men come to the city. They find it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So you see the Amalekites, they take advantage of the weakness of others. That is who they are. So we come back to this Amalekite in 2 Samuel chapter 1. What does he say in verse 6? He says, by chance. You see that? The young man who told him, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. I was just going for a walk. And I couldn't believe my eyes. There's the king of Israel. And he's leaning on his spear. Now notice verse 7. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. Oh, how kind. Saul is, is, is lonely and, and looks and uh, he calls out to this enemy. And, and, he, and he says, yes, here I am. Now, remember in chapter 31, what we had read in verses 4 and 5, Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through it with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. 
Saul doesn't want that to happen, right? He doesn't want the uncircumcised to come and kill him. But the Amalekite is saying, oh yes, Saul called me over. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. So, what happens? The Amalekite allegedly kills Saul, but this is actually a lie that he tells that will ultimately lead to his death. So, they're not two contradictory accounts. You have an account of someone who is lying to David now, saying he killed Saul. And what does he do in verse 10? He brings the crown and the armlet to David. Why would he do that? Did he accidentally see Saul out in the wilderness, about to fall on his spear, do Saul the favor, and then say, oh, I must go and see someone, and sees David and bumps into him and says, oh, you seem like a nice person to give this to. You think he didn't understand who might be the next king? So he happens to bump into David with gifts. Now again, what do Amalekites do? They take advantage of others, specifically the weak. Now this Amalekite, we're also told in our reading of chapter 1 that he's a sojourner. What does that mean? Well, it's actually quite an important clue because a sojourner is someone who sojourns in Israel. That is what they are called, sojourners, because they are in the land of Israel. And we have to ask ourselves another question. Could this sojourner be expected to know that Saul had a special sanctity? Just as the armor bearer would not lift his sword to Saul because he knew he was the Lord's anointed, could this Amalekite know that? And the answer is yes. Why? Because he knew enough to go to David. So he's not an ignoramus. He knows to go to David. He's trying to be politically shrewd, and he's trying to gain favor with the new king. So can we be excused if we learn things to our advantage, but we discard things that are not to our advantage? So in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 22, this is what we are told. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. And those rules incorporate all of the rules of Israel. Anyone who was a sojourner in Israel was under the law of Israel. And if the law of Israel says you shall not touch the Lord's anointed, they were under that law. And I have no doubt that this sojourner, this Amalekite, was aware of this law, but conveniently chose to ignore it. He is guilty. So in verse 16 of chapter 1, he is guilty and he is killed. That is why we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 6, he said to his men, when David had an opportunity to kill Saul, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So what's happening? This Amalekite lies. He takes advantage of the weakness of others, sees Saul there dead because he has killed himself, decides to take what belongs to Saul, magically bumps into David, 
and then tells David, I killed Saul. Now, do you see what this Amalekite is trying to do? He is taking advantage of the weakness of others, a dead king, and he is trying to use it to his own advantage by trying to assure David that he is for him. I have come to you. Look at what I have for you. And tells a lie. And you will see as the story unfolds, it is this lie that ends up leading to his death. In trying to impress David, he has actually done the opposite. Now, who else is this Amalekite like? Is it just the Amalekites in world history that have this problem of taking advantage of the weakness of others? If you actually turn to Matthew chapter 27, since we've covered the entire Old Testament, in verse 27 you see something similar. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Then in verse 33, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, And when, verse 35, they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. These Roman soldiers took advantage of a weak person and divided his garments in an attempt to get personal gain when he was weak. And so we come back to the question, Did that Amalekite have enough information as a sojourner to know that what he did to Saul, allegedly, he shouldn't have done? And the answer is yes. Did these Romans have enough information at the time to know that they're mocking of Jesus, they're putting Jesus to death, and they're renting his garments asunder, so to speak, and dividing them in order for personal gain was also something wrong? And the answer seems to be yes, because also in Matthew, the clues are all there. Matthew chapter 8, the Roman centurion who has such great faith. So when you get to the Romans in chapter 27, you're already to have read chapter 8 of the Roman centurion. And then in Acts chapter 10, you have Cornelius, who was a Roman, who believed. And Luke actually tells us another detail in chapter 23, verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Those are the very words before we are told, and they cast lots to divide his garments. So right before they take advantage of Christ's weakness, he has just asked for them to be forgiven. Jesus is asking for forgiveness for his enemies. Now, who does that remind you of? It takes you right back to David. What this Amalekite could not understand was that David was a godly man. David loved his enemy, Saul. The Amalekite went to David and he projected his own heart onto David. 
And he figured, ah, David will be impressed by this. And he makes up a lie in order to gain favor with David, not knowing that David actually, though he was persecuted by Saul, though he was almost killed by Saul, David nevertheless loved Saul. And he couldn't make sense of that, that Amalekite. It didn't even enter his mind. And that is the same with our Lord Jesus Christ. That is why he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When Jesus uttered those words in the Sermon on the Mount, pray for those who persecute you, you have to wonder if it flashed before his eyes that one day on the cross he would be doing just that. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And I think the clue is he would have understood this because in verse 45, he says, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He is the true Son of the Father who is in heaven. So that when he forgives at the cross, he is actually exemplifying what true sonship is in the face of wicked people. Now, just a few points of application as we close. David is doing the moral thing here. You mustn't think David has just lost his mind. David is doing the moral thing, but David is also doing the political thing. This is very hard for us to understand because we associate politics with what is bad. We say, oh, it's politics. You see this in in organizations. You see this in sports. You see this in our country. We say politics. We immediately say this is bad. But sometimes doing the right thing is also politically advantageous. It's just the way it works sometimes. So as a new king, when David puts this Amalekite to death, he is not only following the word of God, you shall not touch the Lord's anointed and all of the penalties that happen as a result of unlawfully taking someone's life. But David is also honoring Saul's name before he comes into power so that those who followed Saul would not think of David as an enemy. That's very interesting to me. It's also David reminding that you shall not touch the Lord's anointed. And who would be the Lord's anointed? David. Sometimes the right thing to do will also yield political advantages. Many times people try to get political advantage by doing the wrong thing, such as the Amalekite who lied, and look where it got him. But sometimes it yields positive advantages. The second thing I want you to understand is beware of lying for favor. Beware of lying for favor. Because then you have to accept the consequences of that new reality. I know I mentioned this a little bit this morning. But when we in our society today have lost the ability to accurately and clearly define who is a man and who is a woman, that we are believing a lie that the world is believing a lie, you have to then embrace the consequences of that new narrative. And as you embrace the consequences of that new narrative where you cannot say who a man is and who a woman is, then you have to go with all of the consequences of that. And that's what's happening now. 
whether transgender athletes or whether uh, Supreme Court justices not being able to answer basic questions. Once you say, I am not going to believe what God's Word says about who a man is and who a woman is, you have entered into a new reality, and then you have to accept all of the consequences of that new reality. And that new reality may mean that you are simply unable to give an answer to a basic question because that is your new reality. And so the consequences for the Amalekite was he had invented a new reality for himself, that he was the one who killed Saul. And guess what? He now has to bear the consequences of that reality, which for him meant his death. People usually lie to gain an advantage over someone else or others. It is a form of control. And what ends up happening is the very opposite. You end up being controlled by the lie. And you have to then enter into a reality where you are the servant of all of the other facts that accompany that one lie. And then finally, there's a real sense in which I think humanity is summed up in the Amalekite. Meekness is a Christian grace, and meekness has been defined as something very beautiful, It's a Greek word, but the idea goes back to Moses, who was the meekest man on earth. And meekness has been described as power under control. It's being in a position of power, but knowing how to control that, not abuse it. The Amalekite, whether they are raiding Ziklag, or whether this Amalekite is, is taking from Saul the signet and the crown, there's no power under control. It is power for their own ends. And what we need to understand is that true meekness is when we are in a position of power, it is controlling it and not abusing it. But there is one exception where we should take advantage of somebody's weakness. There is one exception. We all need to take advantage of the weakness of Jesus Christ on the cross. You need to take advantage of his death. You need to take advantage of him going to the cross and saying, I want that death for myself. I want that death to save me. That is the one time where you can say, I will take advantage of the weakness of someone else. That is one time where it is a good thing to be a so-called Amalekite when God has given you permission to take advantage of the weakness of His Son who was crucified in weakness, but raised in power. And so that is our story, that while we do not take advantage of the weakness of others, there is one who came and said, we must take advantage of His weakness, His weakness on the cross. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank You for Your Word and ask that You will help us to love Your Word, be enthralled by all of the wonderful truths contained therein, to open our eyes to uh, many, many wonderful illustrations of the gospel, and to remember that by nature we are that Amalekite, lying and killing allegedly to serve our own ends, to gain favor. But oh, let us be those who gain favor with you in the right way by taking advantage of 
the death of Christ on our behalf. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.